Galatians chapter 1 in your Bibles with me, please. Galatians chapter 1. Title of the message this evening, The Simple Gospel. As we consider the gospel of Jesus Christ, we understand that it is the foundation of all theology. It is, if we might call it this, the hinge upon which the Christian world turns. The gospel is everything to biblical Christianity. And when we recognize the importance of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it should be no surprise to us when the gospel is attacked. If you think of a good military commander, a good military commander will certainly uh, enjoy picking off some of the weaklings, uh, some of those uh, stragglers in any uh, military effort. However, his goal is going to be to hit those targets of vital importance, knowing that if he hits the targets of most vital importance, the other um, elements of the, his enemy will, will simply fall apart. And in many ways, knowing that Satan is um, a very clever foe, and he is fighting against the Most High, we can understand, as we think of the Gospel, that the Gospel would probably be uh, a prime target for him. If he can get the Gospel to be confused, if the Gospel can be effectively nullified, then everything else in the Christian faith, and in, according to Christian doctrine, um, will fall to pieces as well. And as we consider Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9 this evening, we are indeed going to consider concepts of the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. What is it and what happens when people pervert it? And so look with me, if you would, in Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to read together verses 6 through 9. Paul says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Paul transitions out of his introduction with a statement of wonder. He's amazed. He marvels that this group of believers could so quickly be removed from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and transfer their loyalties to what Paul calls in this verse, another gospel. Now, the word translated to marvel here uh, is the word in the Greek that literally means to wonder. Um, and it's found some 46 times in the New Testament. It carries a flavor of disbelief. That something has happened, but it falls so far outside of the realm of expectation or out of the realm of reason that the mind struggles to comprehend it. And that's really what Paul is saying here, that his mind, his heart are struggling to comprehend how they could, how they could fall out of loyalty from the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is so far outside of what Paul would expect of believers that he marvels that they are so soon removed from the gospel. His mind struggles to comprehend how these believers could pursue the path that they have taken. And what is this path that they've taken? Well, they've removed themselves, and, and here is where we need to be careful. We need to, to be precise, and here's where things get interesting. Paul says they have removed themselves from him that called them into the grace of Christ. So Paul is not just saying that they've removed themselves from the message of the gospel but much more specifically that they have removed themselves from the one who called them unto the gospel. 
And this is the severity of this gospel issue here, that in order to pervert the message that we call the gospel of Jesus Christ, one must first pervert the character of the one who called us unto this gospel. And who is that? Well, we know in 1 Corinthians 1, 9, the scriptures tell us that God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, 1 Corinthians 1, 9 tells us that God is the one who has called us. We'll see a similar idea in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul says that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. In 2 Timothy 1, 9, Paul, uh, excuse me, 1, 8 and 9, Paul says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us, and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And then in just a couple of verses, we won't get there this week, but Paul will say in Galatians 1.15, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. So we see quite plainly that it is God who has called us unto the grace of Christ, And Paul tells us that to move away from the clear message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to move away from the one who called us unto that message. To redefine the character of the gospel is to redefine the character of God himself. It is to shape God in the image of our understanding of the gospel rather than accepting the gospel within the boundaries of the character of God. And this is what is at stake when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we willingly pervert the gospel of Christ, we are in fact showing ourselves willing and that we have as well. If we've perverted the gospel, we have perverted the character of God. If we wander from the gospel, we wander from the one who presents the gospel, the one who established the gospel. We wander from the Father. And Paul calls this teaching, which they have embraced, another gospel, a gospel that is different in character than the one which the Father had called them unto. Now, this speaks not merely of a different emphasis. We, we know that there are plenty of debates in biblical Christianity today about the emphasis of the gospel, um, about what is most important to highlight grace, law, um, sin, those, all, all of those debates. Uh, We speak not simply here, though, of a different emphasis, but a different character. Not merely of disagreement on the moment of salvation or the emphasis of the gospel, but rather a message that is fundamentally different than the gospel which Paul preached unto them. Now, in regard to this message, Paul clarifies in verse 7, saying this. He says, which is not, this, this, this other gospel, he says, which is not another But there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Paul clarifies saying that it's not actually another gospel which is being preached here. See, because the gospel literally means good news. And what these people are teaching is not, nor can it be, good news for its hearers. Paul makes it clear here what we have already mentioned that this message which they have heard is not simply a different perspective. It is a message that has completely different character. And Paul elaborates on this different character by calling it corruption, 
perversion of the truth of the gospel itself, a fundamental alteration of the message of the gospel. Now at this point, uh, before we forge deeper into the text, I'd like us to establish what the gospel is that Paul had told them. The gospel that Paul preached unto them that he says is now being perverted and accepted in its corrupt form by the church. And to do this, I invite you to turn with me this evening to 1 Corinthians 15. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is not a chapter intended to expound upon the gospel, in fact. It's intended to expound upon the necessity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ unto the gospel. But within the first eight verses, and particularly verses 3, 4, 5, um, we see perhaps what we might call one of the most clear and concise summaries of the gospel of Jesus Christ found anywhere in the entire scriptures. And take a look with me together, if you would, at this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3. We'll read through verse 8. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. Now as we consider this presentation of the gospel, we can take it up in, uh, we can break it up, excuse me, into several clear statements of truth. One, that Christ died for our sins. Two, that Christ was buried and rose again the third day. And then three, if we want to add this one, that Christ was seen alive by several hundred people. This is the gospel. Christ paid the price for our sins when he died on the cross. The cross satisfies God's wrath. Christ rose from the dead the third day, securing for all who will follow him the assurance of victory over death as well, called eternal life. Now, as we would consider what we normally uh, would call a gospel presentation, uh, there are obviously some things missing. The gospel is the good news, but you need to start a little bit earlier than the good news with many people, right? You need to help them see that there is a God and that they are accountable to that God and that they are sinful and that because they are sinful that they have fallen short of God's glory and then because they've fallen short of God's glory, they deserve a... a um, punishment and that punishment is eternity separated from God in a place called the lake of fire and then it is at that point when one recognizes that they are a sin sinner and recognizes that God is holy and recognizes that judgment is to come that then they are ready to hear and accept the gospel but but as we think about all of that really all of that is not the gospel that's the bad news leading up to the good news the gospel itself however a word which literally means good news is God's divine solution to the problem which mankind has incurred through their own sin. Uh, there are many people in many religious groups that are willing to admit that they are separated from God through sin. There are many people and many religious groups who openly confess that there is a place of eternal judgment for those who fall short of God's glory. But for all of the messages that warn men of their sin, for all of the messages that warn men of eternal punishment, there is only one 
message that truly gives mankind good news in regard to this solution, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why the gospel, the exclusivity of the gospel, is that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again, because there are many other solutions out there for our sin. The sin is not the debate. Now, there are, of course, circles where the sin is debated, but, but it's, it's, it's not a debate. Um, we are sinners. Mankind is sinners. Mankind is separated from God. Many religions agree upon this. The debate is how we get back to God, how we get to heaven, how we reconcile to God. That's where the debate truly lies. And this is where the true gospel comes in. And why is the gospel of Jesus Christ such good news? Well, because unlike any other message about mankind's redemption, the gospel of Jesus Christ has absolutely nothing to do with your worthiness. Unlike any other message about mankind's redemption, the gospel of Jesus Christ demands no effort on your part. Unlike any other message about mankind's redemption, the gospel of Jesus Christ lays upon you no burden, places you under no debt, and does not discriminate against anyone in this world. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't care if you're rich or poor. All may come to Christ to be saved. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't care if you're male or female. All may come to Christ to be saved. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't care if you're young or old, wise or foolish, what you've done or what you've not done. All may come to Christ to be saved. It's not about whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. All may come to Christ to be saved. It doesn't ask you to do anything, to complete any process. It doesn't lay upon you any burden that you must fulfill in order to obtain it or in order to keep it. The gospel is an offer purchased by God for you, given to you without cost, and asking of you only your full faith. And if we will believe the gospel, the Bible says we will be saved. To add anything to the message that Christ died and rose again in order to save us from our sins is to corrupt the gospel of Jesus Christ. To remove anything from the gospel, which is that Jesus died on the cross and, and rose again to save us from our sins, grant us eternal life, is to corrupt the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us that the Galatian church, you can turn back there with me, the Galatian church has fallen into another message. And as we'll find out in the months to come, this other gospel is Judaizing, a legalistic gospel, a gospel which taught that you could not be saved, particularly unless you submitted to the rite of circumcision, a gospel which preached salvation conditioned upon effort and work, a gospel which is therefore contrary to the teaching of the scriptures concerning salvation through Christ. See, it's not good news if any part of your salvation depends upon you. And let me be clear here. We are responsible to accept the salvation that we have been offered we have a free will with which we choose either to accept or reject it, but those who accept it have done nothing to earn it and need nothing to keep it, and there's no glory in accepting that which you've been offered. There's no personal work, there's no personal glory um, that doesn't diminish what God did to say that we accepted it. And allow me to illustrate with this idea. Imagine a man who has spent uh, his time and his effort and his money over the course of a full year making a beautiful rocking chair. He designs it, he crafts it, each piece of wood is, is meticulously crafted, he sands them, he stains them, he fits them all together. At the end of his project, he comes up to you and he, you don't know him, he doesn't know you, and he offers you this chair. 
no particular reason. He doesn't do it because you owe uh, he he owes you anything or because you deserve it. He just wants you to have this chair. Now you have a choice to make. You can either accept the chair or you can reject the chair. If you reject the chair, you don't get the chair. If you accept the chair, the chair is yours. So imagine then you accept the chair. Would it be reasonable in any way to say that because you accepted the chair which another man designed, purchased, made, and offered to you, that somehow you had a hand in getting that chair? Is it reasonable that you would be able to receive even the smallest bit of glory or honor or recognition for your role in making or receiving that chair simply because some man said, would you like it? And you said yes. There's no glory for you in that. If if you had a friend come over and say, wow, that's a great chair. And you said, yeah. And you told them the story. They wouldn't look at you and say, wow, you must be something special because you accepted that chair. No, they'd say, wow, that guy is something special because he made a fantastic chair. And what a blessing it is that you are able to reap the benefits of it. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. To accept the gospel of Jesus Christ puts us on about the same level as accepting a chair which was neither created by us, purchased by us, deserved by us, or earned by us. To accept the gospel does not give us a hand in our own salvation. It's simply the means by which... All that Christ has done is transferred to us and made effective on our behalf. For a man, therefore, to say that if you believe in the free will of man or you believe in personal volition, then you've had a part in your own salvation is really nonsensical. It's silly. It's as nonsensical as taking any credit for any part of that rocking chair simply because you said yes when a man offered it to you. Back to our previous point, however, if the gospel depends upon man in any way, it cannot be good news. And why is that? Well, because if the gospel depends on human merit in any way, then by the natural order of things, there must be some people that have a greater advantage than others as it relates to receiving the gospel. Furthermore, if the gospel depends upon me in any way, then that which is gained can also be lost. Finally, if the gospel depends upon some work or some effort, uh, anything on my part, then anyone who cannot or does not attain unto that effort or that standard must by definition be disqualified from the opportunity to be saved. And none of this can be called, as it pertains to the entire world, good news. When a football team wins a game, it's good news for the team that wins and the fans of that team. It's bad news for the team that loses and the fans of that team. To say that uh, one team winning a football game is good news depends upon your perspective. But the Bible doesn't say that the good news of Jesus Christ depends on your perspective. The Bible doesn't call it good news for the obedient, for the righteous. It doesn't call it good news for the Jews. It doesn't call it good news for the elect. It calls it the good news, left unqualified, because... The news is as good for one man as it is for another. The gospel is a universal declaration of redemption from the universal condemnation of our sin. See Romans 5. The gospel levels the playing field from the level playing field of damnation. All men are declared sinners so that all men may receive equal accessibility, equal opportunity to the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. Now, does that mean everyone will receive it? No, but everyone has the chance. And to preach anything else, to add or take away from that message, is to, to, to pervert the gospel. And Paul says that those who preach this perverted gospel trouble the church of Christ. 
confuse them, muddy the waters of the clarity of the gospel through theological and doctrinal confusion. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul warned the Corinthian church against this very thing. It's likely that the epistle to the Galatians was written prior to the epistle of 2 Corinthians, so it may be that as Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, he was writing with a heavy heart knowing the kind of spiritual damage that had been done to the Galatian churches. And look what he tells them in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 4. But I fear, he says, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Paul warns that these corruptions can be subtle, can be deceiving, but are always made apparent because they change the character of Jesus and they change the gospel from something simple to something complex. They mar the very character of Jesus Christ. Paul says they come from another spirit. They that are another gospel. And Paul was fearful that the Corinthian church might be deceived into accepting it. So clear is the truth of the gospel in the scriptures. So established is the truth of the gospel in the heavens. So unchanging is the work accomplished by Christ on the cross of Calvary. That Paul says in verse 8, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. There can be no variance to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So even if Paul... Or for that matter, even if one claiming to be an angel from heaven were to appear and seek to explain away the simple truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ or seek to add anything to its character or seek to change its conditions in any way, that person, that thing should be immediately removed from all fellowship among believing Christians. The concept here of being accursed comes up six times in the New Testament. All this word anathema. It's a very serious word. The implication of the very deepest of cursings whereby you would be removed from all fellowship upon its invocation. This is not the idea we studied a couple weeks ago at the end of Second Thessalonians. The idea of church discipline where, we, where the intent of the action is to compel repentance and restoration. This is the idea of completely cutting them off from the body with no hope of restoration at all. This is the idea of completely severing them because of the danger of their message. Unless we think that Paul doesn't really mean what he says, he repeats his statement in verse 9. And as we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. The gospel is not to be tampered with. And anyone who would seek to tamper with the gospel is a false teacher and worthy of every spiritual censor. While Paul makes this warning concerning the false gospel within the definitive context of the kind of legalism that has ensnared the Galatian church, we can take this principle and use it to judge every gospel presentation, every gospel claim. And this is a process that we call discernment, where we understand the truth so well that we're able to judge all truth claims against the definitive claims of God's word and discern whether they are correct or not. And as we apply this evening, um, we're going to pursue an exercise in discernment. We are going to judge the claims of various gospel teachings against the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ and discern whether or not each 
is a false gospel or a true gospel, with perhaps some disagreement concerning how the gospel is understood or received. As we mentioned, these various doctrines, we obviously will not be spending the time to thoroughly present these views and their nuances, their claims, their counterpoints. This is not our purpose this evening. Our purpose is to understand that how the basic claims of the gospel of Jesus Christ, how the, the, the truth of the gospel can be easily perverted through, through many different avenues. And some of these different teachings by which the gospel is perverted. And as I mentioned this, um, we're going to name a couple of denominations just because they're so deeply associated. Please note again that I'm not saying that everyone in that denomination thinks of, thing, thinks of the gospel this way and that nobody understands. What I have done though is I've gone to the websites of various representative bodies. I've gone to the Catholic website and I've gone to representative bodies for for Lutheranism and for Seventh-day Adventism and such, and I have taken their representative statements about certain things, and I've copied them for you so that you can see, and I'm not going to necessarily place them with their denominations every time, but you can see what what other denominations are definitively claiming out of their own, on their own websites, representing themselves in regard to, to the gospel. And so the first one we're going to consider is what we call baptismal regeneration. And this simply claims that water baptism is integral to salvation, so that without it a man cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. While, water bap uh, wa wa excuse me, while baptismal regeneration teaches, oftentimes, salvation by grace alone, they admit that if a person does not proceed to be baptized, they have fallen short of God's grace. You know what? The gospel doesn't say that. Sacramental salvation teaches that true salvation from sin and from judgment of God ordinarily comes through certain rites and rituals of the church. The sacraments is what they are called. These rites and rituals are seen as the channels through which the saving grace of God flows. So, um, and, and typically when we think of sacramental um, salvation, we think of the Catholic Church. And in this particular case, the Catholics don't definitively say if you don't have each sacrament or if you don't have the sacraments, you don't have Christ. They allow for exceptions, but they're exceptions that prove the rule. And the rule is this, that's, that salvation comes through the rite of sacraments. And in the Catholic Church, there are seven. Baptism, uh, administered to infants, of course, Confirmation, or in the Eastern Orthodox, uh, chrismation, Eucharist, or communion, penance, anointing of the sick, uh, appointing of bishops, priests, and deacons, and then marriage, matrimony. And many, again, that hold to this view would state that their loyalty to the idea of salvation is salvation by grace alone through faith alone. They yet believe that grace is not truly obtained, but through the keeping of these sacraments. Uh, that That if you want salvation, you will keep these sacraments. And this leads us to another uh, Catholic idea, and it, per, it it overflows into some various other denominations as well, some bodies of Lutheranism and Methodism, um, and not all, but some, and that's salvation through the church. The idea being that Christ established the organized church upon this earth as his body, and there is no salvation to one who knowingly rejects association with God's organized church. 
And so this is again an extension of, of this teaching which believes that Christ ordained the church. The Catholics believe this and, and it has boiled over into Lutheranism, um, at least, at least in our area. Um, I can't speak for all, but in our area we see this idea come up. Um, and so because the church is seen as the organizational church instead of what we would call the universal church, Anyone who knowingly rejects the organized church, be it the Catholic Church or the Lutheran Church, according to belief, um, knowingly rejects participation in Christ's body and is therefore outside of Christ. As an extension of uh, sacramental salvation, oftentimes, um, many would believe that the sacraments can only be administered through the church. So you have to go through the church to get to the sacraments, and then you have to go through the sacraments to get to salvation. Can you see the layers? Can you see how the simplicity is lost? Can you see the error? Continuing, we see the idea of salvation through obedience. This is that salvation cannot be assured and only those who, having been redeemed by the grace of Christ, walk in, in, in obedience to all um, the light that God has given to them will be saved. So if a person claims Christ but has wandered away from obedience, it's because they never had Christ to begin with, is what this claims. It muddies the water between what salvation is, which is to accept the gospel by grace through faith, and what sanctification is, uh, what salvation results in, which... Um, if you accept this view, it denies the possibility of a carnal Christian. It demands that every Christian cease sinful lifestyles in order to be saved. And this is often, we, it's called by many names and it's assumed in many different forms. Uh, Lordship salvation has an element of this. Calvinism certainly has an element of this or Reformed theology um, where a person teaches that a person does not accept Christ if they don't amend their sinful ways or if they don't um, live primarily directed by the Spirit of God. If they're living a carnal life, then, they're, then they have fallen short of perseverance or they've fallen short of uh, making the Lord their Lord. And uh, the Bible doesn't speak toward that in regard to salvation. Uh, which in regard to, excuse me, the gospel. Let's, let's keep the name where it needs to be in regard to the gospel. The next idea, and this is the one that the Galatians struggled with, is salvation through the law. And this teaches that salvation requires adherence to a set of rules or standards, whether that be the Mosaic Code or some other rule or standard. In modern day applications, it might be a dress code, it might be music, whatever it might be. Um, and that this is the condition upon which salvation is achieved. Um, that Christians must bind themselves to some set of standards or actions, whatever they may be. And in this perspective, our actions, our adherences, are the gauge by which we and others assess our salvation. We see this uh, modern application in some fundamentalist works, and then also in, say, the Mennonite community and, and some Amish communities have this sort of an idea here. Uh, this law could, as I mentioned, be the Mosaic law, things such as keeping the Sabbath, not eating certain foods, being circumcised. Um, and that's still common, of course, as well among Judaism. Uh, or it could be a moral law, mandatory, church attendance, modesty, whatever standards it might be. And the final one we'll consider, and of course there's many more, is salvation through acknowledgement. And we would call this um, the social gospel. That you don't actually have to know, care, or believe that you're a sinner. 
Now, you don't actually have to have that foundation of recognizing you have a problem at all in order to be able to receive the gospel. The gospel basically becomes this sort of um, good message where um, Jesus died for everybody and, and if you like Jesus, then you're on his team and if you're on his team and you're a follower, then then you're, you're going to be fine and he's going to bless you and everything's wonderful and everything's happy and just ignore sin and just ignore your responsibility to him and just ignore um, separation and distinction and um, being something different and being chosen out of this world. Just ignore all of that. That's not really what it's about. It's about um, you living your best life now. Does that sound familiar? This is the Joel Olstein gospel. This is that kind of a gospel. This is the kind of, this is the televangelist gospel. This is the gospel that says, don't worry about your sin. Just know that Jesus loves you. And if you accept Jesus' love, then you're in. No understanding of our sin nature. No understanding that we've been separated from a holy God. And if you don't understand, if you haven't heard the gospel, then you can't receive the gospel. If you haven't heard, if you don't know why you need a gospel, then you're never going to accept a gospel. And so this social gospel falls short as well. It's, it's false. And as we consider each of these teachings, we need only compare them against the statements of God's word to discern the areas where they go wrong. And allow me to clarify a couple of points here once again. There are many in each of these movements, denominations, belief systems, whatever you call it, who truly recognize salvation by grace through faith. And uh, the, the waters are muddy and they see, they see the cause and effect properly. Yes, if a person gets saved, they will, uh, they ought to feel the compulsion to get baptized. They ought to feel the compulsion to, to obey and to, to set standards. They ought to recognize the love of Christ. They ought to um, continue walking and serving the Lord. Yes, they ought to. And, and, and there are those who, while they hold to these different labels, they do, in their heart, recognize cause, the proper cause and effect. And by that same token, there are many who, though um, they believe and state the gospel is by grace alone, through faith alone, without anything else, and they don't have any sort of conditions in their statements, in their hearts, they're still conditioning their salvation upon something, usually some form of works or self-righteousness. So I'm not here, again, to openly declare any person, any representative body, completely apostate. My desire here is to help you discern the nuances of salvation and that by having such an intimate understanding of the simple truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, all errant presentations will fall away or will be obvious. So as we close today, I'd like to give you a quote, a quote that speaks very clearly of the true gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel which Paul is asserting in Galatians, the, Paul, the gospel which Paul calls simple in 2 Corinthians. And listen to this quote. He says, the gospel is not a call to repentance or to amendment of our ways, to make restitution for past sins or to promise to do better in the future. These things are proper in their place, but they do not constitute the gospel. For the gospel is not good advice to be obeyed, it is good news to be believed. Do not make the mistake, then, of thinking that the gospel is a call to duty or a call to reformation, a call to better your condition, to behave yourself in a more perfect way than you have been doing in the past. 
nor is the gospel a demand that you give up the world, that you give up your sins, that you break off bad habits and try to cultivate good ones. You may do all these things and yet never believe the gospel and consequently never be saved at all. The gospel is this. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And any man who will confess, by rec- of course he has to recognize that he's a sinner to confess that Christ died for those sins. Any man who confesses that Jesus died for their sins and places their full faith in Jesus' resurrection from the dead shall be saved. To recognize our sinful state, to acknowledge Christ paid it all, to recognize Christ's claim victory over death, that he offers the same victory to us through him, to accept these truths with all of our hearts is to be saved. Anything else leads us down a very dangerous path of adding conditions upon the gospel which simply are not present in the Word of God. And as we venture through the epistle of Galatians, we will find that confusion concerning the gospel will lead us down a path of theological confusion in nearly every other area of Christian life. And it can deeply harm not just us, but, and I would say in particular, the future generations. So, as we close this evening, let's get this one right. Let's get the gospel right. Let's pray.